Chapter Twenty Three of Uncle Silas by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three. I talk with Doctor Bryerly. Doctor Bryerly had indeed arrived at half past twelve o'clock at night. His summons at the hall door was little heard at our remote side of the old house of Knoll, and when the sleepy, half-dressed servant opened the door. The lank doctor, in glossy black clothing, was standing alone, his portmanteau on its end upon the steps, and his vehicle disappearing in the shadows of the old trees. In he came, sterner and sharper of aspect than usual. "'I've been expected. I'm Dr. Bryerly. Haven't I? So let whoever is in charge of the body be called. I must visit it forthwith.' So the doctor sat in the back drawing-room, with a solitary candle, and Mrs. Rusk was called up, and, grumbling much and very peevish, dressed and went down, her ill-temper subsiding in a sort of fear, as she approached the visitor. "'How do you do, madam? A sad visit, this. Is any one watching in the room where the remains of your late master are laid?' "'No. So much the better. It is a foolish custom. Will you please conduct me to the room?' I must pray where he lies, no longer he, and be good enough to show me my bedroom, and so no one need wait up, and I shall find my way. Accompanied by the man who carried his valise, Mrs. Rush showed him to his apartment, but he only looked in, and then glanced rapidly about to take his bearings of the door. Thank you, yes. Now we'll proceed. Here? Along here? Let me see turn to the right and another to the left yes he has been dead some days is he yet in his coffin yes sir since yesterday afternoon mrs rusk was growing more and more afraid of this lean figure sheathed in shining black cloth whose eyes glittered with a horrible sort of cunning and whose long brown fingers groped before him as if indicating the way by guess but of course the lid's not on "'You've not screwed him down, eh?' "'No, sir.' "'That's well. I must look on the face as I pray. He is in his place, I here on earth. He in the spirit, I in the flesh. The neutral ground lies there. So are carried the vibrations, and so the light of earth and heaven reflected back and forward. Apogasma, a wonderful though helpless engine, the ladder of Jacob, and behold the angels of god ascending and descending on it thanks i'll take the key mysteries to those who will live altogether in houses of clay no mystery to such as will use their eyes and read what is revealed this candle it is the longer please no no need of a pair thanks just this to hold in my hand and remember all depends upon the willing mind why do you look frightened where is your faith don't you know that spirits are about us at all times why should you fear to be near the body the spirit is everything the flesh profiteth nothing yes sir said mrs rusk making him a great curtsey in the threshold she was frightened by his eerie talk which grew she fancied more voluble and energetic as they approached the corpse Remember, then, that when you fancy yourself alone and wrapped in darkness, you stand, in fact, in the centre of a theatre, 
as wide as the starry floor of heaven, with an audience whom no man can number, beholding you under a flood of light. Therefore, though your body be in solitude and your mortal sense in darkness, remember to walk as being in the light, surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. Thus walk, and when the hour comes and you pass forth, unprisoned from the tabernacle of the flesh, although it still has its relations and its rights. And saying this, as he held the solitary candle aloft in the doorway, he nodded towards the coffin, whose large black form was faintly traceable against the shadows beyond. You will rejoice, and being clothed upon with your house from on high, you will not be found naked. On the other hand, he that loveth corruption shall have enough thereof. Think upon these things. Good night. And the Swedenborgian doctor stepped into the room, taking the candle with him, and closed the door upon the shadowy still life there, and on his own sharp and swarthy visage, leaving Mrs. Rusk in a sort of panic in the dark alone, to find her way to her room the best way she could. Early in the morning Mrs. Rusk came to my room to tell me that Dr. Briley was in the parlour, and begged to know whether I had not a message for him. I was already dressed, so, though it was dreadful seeing a stranger in my then mood, taking the key of the cabinet in my hand, I followed Mrs. Rusk downstairs. Opening the parlour door, she stepped in, and with a little curtsey said, "'Please, sir, the young mistress, Miss Ruthyn.' Draped in black and very pale, tall and slight, the young mistress was, and as I entered I heard a newspaper rustle, and the sound of steps approaching to meet me. Face to face we met, near the door, and, without speaking, I made him a deep curtsey. He took my hand, without the least indication on my part, in his hard, lean grasp, and shook it kindly, but familiarly, peering with a stern sort of curiosity into my face as he continued to hold it. His ill-fitting glossy black cloth, ungainly presence, and sharp, dark vulpine features had in them, as I said before, the vulgarity of a Glasgow artisan in his Sabbath suit. I made an instantaneous motion to withdraw my hand, but he held it firmly. Though there was a grim sort of familiarity, there was also decision, shrewdness, and, above all, kindness in his dark face, a gleam on the whole of the masterly and the honest, that along with a certain paleness betraying, I thought, restrained emotion, indicated sympathy and invited confidence. "'I hope, miss, you are pretty well.' He pronounced pretty as it is spelt. I have come in consequence of a solemn promise exacted more than a year since by your deceased father, the late Mr. Austin Ruthyn of Knoll, for whom I cherished a warm esteem, being knit besides with him in spiritual bonds. It has been a shock to you, miss. It has, indeed, sir. I have a doctor's degree, I have. Doctor of medicine, miss. Like St. Luke, preacher and doctor. I was in business once, but this is better. As one footing fails, the Lord provides another. The stream of life is black and angry. How so many of us get across without drowning, I often wonder. The best way is not to look too far before, just from one stepping-stone to another, and though you may wet your feet, he won't let you drown. 
he has not allowed me. And Dr. Bryerly held up his head and wagged it resolutely. You are born to this world's wealth, in its way a great blessing, though a great trial, miss, and a great trust, but don't suppose you are destined to exemption from trouble on that account, any more than poor Emmanuel Bryerly. As the sparks fly upwards, Miss Thruffin, your cushioned carriage may overturn on the high road, as I may stumble and fall upon the footpath. There are other troubles than debt and privation. Who can tell how long health may last, or when an accident may happen the brain? What mortifications may await you in your own high sphere? What unknown enemies may rise up in your path, or what slanders may asperse your name? <laughs> it is a wonderful equilibrium, a marvellous dispensation. <laughs> and he laughed with a shake of his head, I thought a little sarcastically, as if he was not sorry my money could not avail to buy immunity from the general curse. But what money can do, prayer can. Bear that in mind, Miss Ruthyn. We can all pray, and though thorns and snares and stones of fire lie strewn in our way, we need not fear them. He will give his angels charge over us, and in their hands they will bear us up, for he hears and sees everywhere, and his angels are innumerable. He was now speaking gently and solemnly, and paused, but another vein of thought he had unconsciously opened in my mind, and I said, "'And have my dear papa no other medical adviser? He looked at me sharply and flushed a little under his dark tint. His medical skill was, perhaps, the point on which his human vanity vaunted itself, and I dare say there was something very disparaging in my tone. And if he had no other, he might have done worse. I've had many critical cases in my hands, Miss Ruthyn. I can't charge myself with any miscarriage through ignorance. My diagnosis in Mr. Ruthyn's case has been verified by the result. But I was not alone. Sir Clayton Barrow saw him, and took my view. A note will reach him in London. But this, excuse me, is not to the present purpose. The late Mr. Ruthyn told me I was to receive a key from you, which would open a cabinet where he had placed his will. Ha! Thanks! In his study and I think, as there may be directions about the funeral, it had better be read forthwith. Is there any gentleman, a relative or man of business near here, whom you would wish sent for? No, none, thank you. I have confidence in you, sir. I think I spoke and looked frankly, for he smiled very kindly, though with closed lips. And you may be sure, Miss Ruthyn, your confidence shall not be disappointed. Here was a long pause. But you are very young, and you must have someone by in your interest, who has some experience in business. Let me see. Is not the rector, Dr. Clay, at hand, in the town? Very good. And Mr. Danvers, who manages the estate? He must come. And get Grimston. You see, I know all the names. Grimston the attorney. For though he was not employed about this will, he has been Mr. Ruthyn's solicitor a great many years. We must have Grimston, for, as I suppose you know, though it is a short will, it is a very strange one. 
I expostulated, but you know he was very decided when he took a view. He read it to you, eh? No, sir. Oh, but he told you so much as relates to you and your uncle, Mr. Silas Ruffin, of Bartram Howe. No, indeed, sir. Ha! I wish he had. And with these words, Dr. Bryerley's countenance darkened. Mr. Silas Ruffin is a religious man? Oh, very, said I. You've seen a good deal of him? No, I never saw him, I answered. Hmm, odder and odder. But he's a good man, isn't he? Very good indeed, sir. A very religious man. Dr. Bryerley was watching my countenance as I spoke, with a sharp and anxious eye, and then he looked down and read the pattern of the carpet, like bad news, for a while, and looking again in my face askance, he said, He was very near joining us on the point. He got into correspondence with Henry Verst, one of our best men. They call us Swedenborgians, you know, but I dare say that won't go much further now. I suppose, Miss Ruffin, one o'clock would be a good hour, and I am sure, under the circumstances, the gentleman will make a point of attending. Yes, Dr. Bryerley. The notes shall be sent, and my cousin Lady Knollys would, I am sure, attend with me, while the will is being read. There would be no objection to her presence. None in the world. I can't be quite sure who are joined with me as executors. I'm almost sorry I did not decline, but it is too late regretting. One thing you must believe, Miss Ruthyn, in framing the provisions of the will, I was never consulted. Although I expostulated against the only very unusual one it contains when I heard it, I did so strenuously, but in vain. There was one other thing against which I protested, having a right to do so with better effect. In no other way does the will in any respect owe anything to my advice or dissuasion. You will please believe this, also, that I am your friend. Yes, indeed, it is my duty. The latter words he spoke looking down again, as it were in soliloquy, and thanking him, I withdrew. When I reached the hall, I regretted that I had not asked him to state distinctly what arrangements the will made so nearly affecting, as it seemed, my relations with my uncle Silas, and for a moment I thought of returning and requesting an explanation. But then, I bethought me, it was not very long to wait till one o'clock. So he, at least, would think. I went upstairs, therefore, to the schoolroom, which we use at present as a sitting-room, and there I found Cousin Monica awaiting me. "'Are you quite well, dear?' asked Lady Knollys, as she came to meet and kiss me. "'Quite well, Cousin Monica.' "'No nonsense, Maud. You're as white as that handkerchief. What's the matter? Are you ill? Are you frightened?' "'Yes, you're trembling. You're terrified, child.' "'I believe I am afraid. There is something in poor papa's will about Uncle Silas, about me. I don't know.' Dr. Bryerley says, and he seems so uncomfortable and frightened himself. I am sure it is something very bad. I am very much frightened. I am. I am. Oh, Cousin Monica, you won't leave me. So I threw my arms about her neck, clasping her very close, and we kissed one another, I crying like a child, and, indeed, in experience of the world, I was no more. End 
of chapter twenty three